0: feeling like we need to do this other song that I have in my heart right now. Yeah. So, uh sing with me, alright guys? We don't have to say anything else, right? <laughs> alright, well you know if you know this one. You know this one. <laughs> Holy
1: Spirit. You know how that is?
0: Exactly. Seemed a little disunified to me. (laughs) Well, good morning. Uh, We are continuing on. This is our last week of our sermon series over uh, Healthy Church. So we've spent the first four weeks talking about the identity of the church. Who Who is the church? Um, we've learned that the church isn't a building, it's a, it's not a, a program, it's not a business, it's not a club, but rather the people, uh, the, the church is the people of God, All right, The church is a, a people that have been bought by Christ, that are, that are centered around the gospel, that are proclaiming the glory of God. And so we see that, the who is the church? We've talked about that for four weeks, now we're talking about the expression of the church, what is the church called to focus on? What is the, the life of the church practically called to be about? And we've seen that the church is called to be about making disciples, right? The church is practically to think about what does it mean to proclaim the gospel that others would come to know Jesus and to help them to obey Christ as they grow up. Um, the role of the church is to help facilitate that. Um, the church is a parent helping to raise up newborns, helping to see them grow into maturity um, and into the fullness of Christ. And then last week, we talked about that one, another thing that the church is practically called to, to express His identity is through being holy. that God is holy, and He calls us to be a holy people, that it's something that He gives to us, but it's also something that we must pursue, that we are called to be holy, as He is holy. So today, we are going to finish out our sermon series, and we're going to talk about that the church is called to express its identity through being unified, through being unified through being, having the same heart, the same mind, the same focus. And so the big idea that we're going to kind of hang everything that's going to um, guide our time today is that the church expresses her identity through her love, her commitment, and her covenant to Christ and to one another. Uh, that we are a people that are united by covenant to God and also to one another. So, if you have your Bibles, we're going to go ahead and we're going to be in John 17, John chapter 17, for our time together. Um, we're going to kind of break up and we're going to start actually midway through Jesus's prayer. Uh, we're going to start in verse 20. Uh, we're going to start in verse 16 and go to verse 26. And so, just a little context of uh, Jesus' prayer because we're entering midway through the prayer time. Um, is that this is what's called Jesus' high priestly prayer. And what that means is it means that Jesus is interceding for his people. So in, in the Old Testament, there were three roles, prophet, king, and priest. A prophet declared God's truth, declared God's word, spoke it, was kind of a teacher. The king was the one that led forth in God's ways, and the priest The priest was the one that interceded. He came on behalf of the people to God. He sacrificed for them so that they might have forgiveness. And so what you see here is Jesus is coming on behalf of his people. He's coming saying, I speak for them. I am praying for them. Listen to what I'm saying, God, because I represent them. And so we're hearing God's heart. I don't know you, but I love hearing people pray. When we come into prayer time, it's one of the most intimate, the most beautiful times because somebody really lays forth and bears forth their heart. They really show what matters to them, what's really important because they're coming to God asking for these things. And so we're getting the most intimate picture of Jesus that we can because this is his closest relationship, the one that drives him, the one that motivates him. And so we're getting a a very clear picture into the heart of Christ. What matters him? What is he longing for? What is he asking the Father for? And so look in verse uh, 16 with me and read along. It says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. It's God's word. So I want to ask: There's going to be three points that kind of guard or guide our uh, conversation for today. Um, The first one is why we need unity. Um, So why we need unity? Uh, What is the nature of Christian unity? Um, and then what expresses, how are we expressing that unity here in the church? So why we need unity, what is Christian unity, and then how are we expressing it here um, as a local church at Faith Fellowship? So let's start our time. Um, first, why do we need unity? Um, as you saw the very uh, entertaining drama up here of why we need unity. What happens when you have people that are in discord, right? Chaos ensues. Nobody knows what's part who's playing, and the congregation stares amazed and, uh, and stunned and kind of wondering what's going on here. Uh, and so you see, unity is... Yes, Marty, you can thank Marty for his dramatic... Uh, but you can see a, a very practical example of what happens when there's not unity, when we don't know what's going on, when different people are playing different parts and everybody is going along to the, drum of their, to the beat of their own drum. I saw this, uh, just this week. So, um, I pinched a nerve in my back or in my neck, um, this past Friday. I was, uh, doing yard work, cutting down trees. I hate palms now. So palms are my enemies. Um, they're, they can be very difficult to cut. Uh, they're, they're beautiful, but, but they are frustrating. So, um, but I was cutting it down and going to push and, felt the nerve pinch. And I'm sure, man, I'm sure tons of you know what I'm talking about. You've had, whether it's your back or whether it's a nerve that's pinched or whether it's something that's broken, but you know what it's like to have your body not be unified, right? And it's, you you never realize how much unity matters in your body until you don't have it, right? You never know how much that your big toe mattered or that little nerve in your neck actually is important until it's not working properly. And then all of a sudden, you're very aware that this unity brings pain and brings hurt and brings trouble. That even, it's amazing how even the simplest of tasks become so complex and so painful when there's not unity in your body. Right? I mean, for the first day after I woke up, I was like having to turn and look and say, what? You know, like it's very entertaining, you know, for Emily. It was a sad part that she had to drive me around everywhere. But, uh, but we see that in, in all kinds of different expressions, not just physically in our body. But I think this is a great analogy for what it is in the church. That we, when we don't have unity in Christ's body, even the most common tasks become painful, become difficult, become strenuous. We realize the need for unity when we don't have it. Sometimes we take it for granted, right? Sometimes we see this with our body and also like in our physical body, but also the body of Christ. Sometimes we just get accustomed to the pain. We just grow used to that this is the way that things are. I'm always going to have this pain in my back. I'm always going to have this ache. And so it just kind of sets in and, and sometimes we forget what it means to have everything operate in a healthy way. And so too in our relationships, sometimes in the church, we're so used to brokenness. We're so used to debate and to frustration and to anger and to selfishness and pride that we grow accustomed to those relationships when we forget of what the it can be, of the beauty that can happen when everything's operating as it's intended, when there's unity in the body. So what causes disunity? What brings fracture into God's church? Um, In James 4, he kind of lays out the reasons that um, there's disunity, that there's division. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You notice this is one of the reasons that James says that there's division in the church and that there's disunity is because there's disunity within individual Christians. He says, your passions are at war within you. And what he imagines is, he imagines fighting yourself. Have you ever had that where somebody grabs your hand and starts punching you and says, don't hit yourself, don't hit yourself, right? It's kind of amusing when you're the older brother doing that, you know? But it's kind of annoying when you're the one getting hit by yourself. It's not very fun. And this is kind of the picture that he has is this really ironic thing of it, like you're fighting with yourself, that you're hitting yourself and then you're trying to dodge the hit, you know? Um, and so it's this picture that, the reason that there's divisions in the church, that there's disunity, is because oftentimes in our individual lives, there's this disunity. There's this fight between our passions, and we're struggling. And we bring that disunity into the body, and we begin to create disunity because of the disunity that's in our own heart. And he goes through, James goes through, and he lists all these different things that, that are causes of, or that, that are seen as passions that are at war within us. He talks about that coveting, that when we covet others, we're not content in what we have, but instead we look at someone else. And we look at either their relationships or their finances, their popularity. We look at, you know, their job or whatever else it is, and we say, I've got to have that. We're not content. And so we bring that covetous unsettledness of our heart into community. And it breeds greed and selfishness. He talks about an, another one that is, it's pride. All right, we come in and we think that we're better than others. We think that we're better than we actually are. We don't have a, a, realistic, a realistic view of ourselves. And so we come in and we have to put down other people. We have to constantly be focusing on us. And it breeds disunity, breeds division. Because we have to be better than someone else to feel good about ourselves. And he says all of these things are what breed Disunity. That they they create unsettledness in our own heart and therefore when we come with unsettledness and brokenness within, we can't help but create from what's within us. And I think that all of us would say there's degrees of that unsettledness, there's a degree of that brokenness within our own hearts. We all can say, that's why when we look at the brokenness, we can all say that there are things that we have contributed, that we all fall short. And James says that this isn't just mistakes, they're not just problems, that it's, it's sin. And he, he says that it's, he uses the uh, an analogy that's one of the most horrendous for sin. He says that it's adultery against God. That this sin that is, that's disunity in our heart, that breeds disunity in the church, that it's, it's outright adultery. But what it is, is that we choose other gods above creator God. And we say, that this is what I really need to be satisfied. I need to be seen like this. I need to have these kinds of possessions. I need to squelch this person so that I might be made much of. And he says, that what that is, is it's, it's denying that God is sufficient. It's denying that he is who he says that he is. And it's saying that all these other things are what I really need. And he says, whenever we choose other things over God, it's going to breed division. It's going to breed disunity. And that's what disunity is at the heart of it. It's forsaking God and choosing other things that aren't really God. It's putting them first in our lives. So, why is it that we need unity, though? We need unity because, for multitudes of reasons, but one of the primary ones is that it brings strength and purpose to the church's mission. So, we were at SeaWorld uh, last weekend. Emily uh, got to take me. We got out of town for a couple days, and I've never seen orcas. Um, They're amazing, massive beautiful creatures, Um, and got to like, you know, watch documentaries about them. And one of the amazing things is that though they're powerful individually, the strength is in the pack, right? The the way that they're, they're the apex predator, right? There's nothing that can, you know, except for man who destroys them, but uh, everything else in in the wild, they're the apex predator and nothing can come against them. And the reason is that they're intelligent and they work in groups, that when they're hunting, they all have a plan, all have a purpose, and they fit in line with that. And the unity of the pack is what brings strength to the attack. And as they go, it's what allows them to bring down animals that are twice their size. And thinking about that, you know, it's the unity of the church that allows the strength of our purpose. Have you ever done that where you have a big log and you start to break it into pieces and then you you get the bundle closer and closer and you go to break it, but you can't because there's too many for you to actually break. That when the church is unified, when we're together and we have the same heart and the same mind, the same purpose behind us, we gain strength from one another. And I, let's testify to that. I've seen it in your lives. As each of you individually pursue Christ, it brings strength to others. As we corporately pursue Christ, it brings hope to those that don't know him. And so don't discount that you as an individual, when brought together with a community can make a massive difference in people's lives. As you rejoice in your suffering, as you're patient in trials, as you choose to to commit and to give up of your time and your energy and your resources, rather than to use it selfishly, that inspires others and it creates strength and it produces movement that glorifies God. We need unity. For you see, we're weak individually. Oftentimes we're like sheep that wander away and we're attacked and devoured by by the wolf but it's in the strength of the herd it's in the, sh- in the strength of the of the sheep together that they have protection that the predators aren't as likely to attack because of the numbers because of the, they're following their shepherd faithfully so we need unity because it, it brings strength but one of the other reasons that we need unity is um, is because it testifies to the world that Jesus is who he says he is We see it in uh, in verse 23. He says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. He says that we're not to simply be unified for unity's sake because there's all kinds of things that can unify us, right? I mean, pick the right hobby or sports team and you can be unified around that. There's lots of trivial things that don't matter that you can be unified around. So we're not called to simply have the same mind about work or sports or entertainment or our, you know, our current stage in life, right? This is not the primary thing that's to bind us together. Rather, we are to be bound together for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his glory. And he says that this has implications upon our evangelism. And this speaks so much to our culture because He's saying that you as an individual are not going to be as fruitful in evangelism than you as a community. You see, there's something about the way that Christians are to love one another that demonstrates the world that Jesus really is who he said he is. That Jesus really did die for his people's sins and did really raise from the dead and really is alive right here and right now living in his church. There's something about the way that we are to love one another, that we're to forgive one another. That we're to be patient with each other. That testifies that Jesus really is alive because he's done those things to us. You see, that's, that's the only way that we can do this. The only way that we can be patient and forgiving and loving with one another is by first experiencing it ourselves. I don't have it in myself. You don't have it in yourself to give the kind of love, to give the kind of commitment, the kind of patience, endurance that people need. We will run dry. We'll find that our gas tank is on empty time and time again. We have to go first to Christ and we have to experience these things for ourselves. You see, it's when you've experienced Christ's love. It's when you've seen his forgiveness to you. It's when you realize that though you have forsaken him and you have turned and chased after worthless things, but he has been patient with you. Will that give you the power and the ability to be committed to, to be patient, to be committed to others. When they don't love you in return, when they hurt you, when they don't love you as you feel like you should be loved. And this is what the world desperately needs. It desperately needs to see the first fruits of the new creation, of what God is doing, and we're to be that picture. We're to be the picture of what God is ultimately going to do to everything. That through his church, He is beginning to make us new. He's bearing his fruit in us. And this is what testifies. It testifies to non-Christians. It creates a healthy kind of envy, a healthy covetousness. You see, covetousness, all covetousness isn't bad. There's healthy covetousness, right? Where you see something that is good that you should long for, right? Whether it's a a healthy marriage, a healthy relationship, whether it's seeing someone that's pursuing Christ full-heartedly, and you say, I want to love Jesus as they love Christ. They are healthy examples that we are to strive after. And you see, this is what the churches provide. It's to show the world what it means to be in community and to welcome them in. So often it's it's Christians that forsake community with other Christians and go to, to hunt down the lost. But you see, the Bible portrays something different. It's it's to be the Christians in community that are inviting others to experience the kind of love and life that's in that community. It's as we're committed to each other and inviting others to experience what it looks like to be in such committed, loving relationships that they'll begin to want what we have. And and for me, this is convicting because the question is are we the kind of people that are that committed, that loving, that patient with others that people see our relationships and want Jesus? And, And it challenges me at the core because you see, oftentimes we're committed to a degree. We'll go this far, but then no further. And when we look at Christ and we look at how committed he was, he didn't say, I'm just going to give this much of my life and then I'm going to pull back. I'm going to give this much of my time and then I'm going I'm to guard the rest. Christ said, I'm going to give everything. I'm giving it all. And that's what it means to follow after him. as it means that we give him all of us rather than chunking out pieces that we can delegate and say, ah, I'm not really sure. And it's only as each of us are f- are all in, each of us are fully committed to Christ, that the world will see and say, that is beautiful. That is rare. That is something that I want to be a part of my life. We need We need unity. We need to be on the same page. We need to be on board with one another. Francis Schaeffer talks about it. He says, we cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. C.S. Lewis goes on and, and talks about it. He says that division between Christians are a sin and a scandal. And Christians at, and Christians ought at all times to be making contributions towards reunion if it is only by their prayers so what he what they're saying there is that things that we might think are trivial favoritism having clicks where you just get along with certain people and you just you don't hang out with others gossip selfishness these are more than just individual things these are more than just private sins That these sins that we harbor, that we hold close to us, that they have a massive effect on the church and the world. You see, so often we think just privately, we think just individually. And the Bible says that that's not true, that our sin has massive ramifications upon everyone and everything else in our life. And this is why Christ says the first and foremost call of a Christian is to seek first Christ and his kingdom. And his righteousness and all of these things will be added to us. So we see we we desperately need unity as a church. We need it because sin comes and breaks this and breaks and brings disunity. We need it because we want the world to know who Christ is. We desperately want those that don't know Christ to come to know who he is, and that happens as we live life in community with other Christians. So what is the nature of Christian unity? What exactly makes us unified? Uh, as I was preparing for the sermon, I ran across a quote that really struck me as the kind of the essence of, of what we have to believe first and foremost before to understand anything else beyond this. It's by A.W. Tozer. And he said that unity in Christ is not something simply to be achieved, but it is something to be recognized. Christian unity is to be something that is recognized rather than simply achieved. And what he's saying is that there is a reality, the truth of the fact, is that as a Christian, we are unified with other Christians. That is the truth. That is the reality that needs to be recognized. And how does that happen? It happens because of covenant. Right? We believe that when we become a Christian, we enter into covenant with God. We enter into covenant with Jesus. Right? And a covenant is a commitment that is based on relationship love but yet also commitment it's also law there's also things that we are to do and we see that that jesus christ brought us into covenant with himself that he died on the cross for our sin he raised again from the dead three days later and his commitment to us is that if we trust in him that he will save us from our sin that as we trust in he will lead us as our Lord and as our God, as our rescuer. That he will provide for us, he will protect us. That he will always be there and he will never leave us nor forsake us. We have these commitments that Jesus says that he will be there for us. And we can count on them. But likewise, the covenant that Jesus brings about, he calls us to commitments. He calls us to respond to him. And so our part of the covenant as Christians is that we are to respond to Christ through faith. That we are to respond through turning from our sin and placing more trust in Jesus. That we are to worship Him. We are to serve Him. That we are to give our lives for Him. See that it's, it's a covenant. There's agreement that this is what it means. We're, he is our God and we are His people. And we are to follow after Him. But the greatness of the covenant is that though we fail to keep our part, he doesn't fail to keep his part. Though we forsake him, though we fail to serve him at times, though we neglect him, he will never stop being our God. He will never stop loving us. He will never stop rescuing us from ourselves. Over and over and over again, he demonstrates his faithfulness to us. You see that when we enter into covenant with Jesus as a Christian, we also enter into covenant with his bride, the church. What it means to be a Christian is that you are bound together with other Christians. We are one. We see this in, uh, in Galatians 3, verse 26 through 28. He talks about that we are, we're family. And you, you see it in the passage that he says that we are to be one, even as Jesus and the Father are one. Now think about that. That's a pretty drastic and dramatic claim. Think about how unified Jesus is with his Father. He said that he did everything that the Father that, that pleased the Father. Jesus' whole life was in complete unison with God the Father. And he says that is the kind of unity that is to be found in the church amongst us. Why? How? Paul talks about, he says in verse twenty six in Galatians three. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What he's saying there is he's saying that we are family in the truest and deepest sense. That when we come into Christ, we are adopted in, purchased to be his sons and his daughters. And so when we look around, we are family. We are truly brothers and sisters. And this is what Jesus said. He said, who are my brothers, my mothers, my sisters, those who do the will of God. And so we are bound together as a family. This is sometimes difficult because we don't always get along with our family, do we? Right, All of us know, you know, biologically there are times where we're like, man, I just don't get along with my family. And so we realize that even though unity is a fact, that unity is declared, that it still is something that must be strived for. Because we see that in our families, right? I mean, you can have, even though you might be blood, there are times where I, at least I know in my family, with my sister, there are times where we have to strive to have unity. We have to strive to have the same mind because there are times where we don't. And we see that in the church too, don't we? that though the fact the reality of the matter is that we are united you are brothers and sisters of one another if you are in Christ that's the truth it still means that we have to strive for unity with each other but we have to be patient we have to endure so oh this is sorry next a clarifying point the way in which we pursue The way in which we pursue unity as Christians is through focusing first and foremost on Christ. You see, oftentimes when you think about getting on the same page with somebody, you think about, well, let's sit down. You know, what are we going to be unified about? You know, you think about a sports team or you think about uh, a job where you're going to sit down and you're going to discuss the intricacies of it and how is it going to work? You know, what's the game plan? And you need to get on the same page. And that's true in part for Christians. But really, the essence of christian unity isn't found in us discussing how the practicalities of we're going to be unified it's more in focusing upon the one that actually can unify us because you see unity isn't something isn't simply something that we collectively put our minds on but it's also a gift that god gives through focusing on him aw tozer once again has a, a really clarifying quote he says has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turning their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. You hear what Tozer is saying? He's saying the way that we are unified is by seeking Christ first. The way that we're unified is because when we're in Christ, he's given us his spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one that unifies us. The Holy Spirit is the one that gives us the same heart that God has. The Holy Spirit is the one that gives us the same mind that Christ has. And so as we all personally, individually seek first Christ, He's going to bring a passion and a unity and a love amongst us that would be impossible any other way. That wouldn't be that would happen if we were to sit around talking about our plans and purposes for how we can be unified. We all are responsible for unity within the church. You see, it's not something that we can just point at one person or at a leader and say, well, they just aren't... Unity is something that every single person within the body of Christ is responsible for, that we are all to strive to pursue it as we're pursuing Christ. And this, this unity doesn't mean uniformity, though. right? I think that's important for us to understand. Christianity isn't just a cookie cutter where you just make the same mold. Unif- unity is in the midst of diversity. right? That We as a church are very different. We have very different preferences, very different ideas about how things ought to go. But yet, we find unity because it 's not about our purposes it 's not about our intentions, our desires. instead, we bow our preferences, we bow our desires, we bow our our wants to Christ, and he is the filter you know and th- this unity is sought through in humility. You see it was we we say it's not about me, but i'm going to 'm going to put first others i 'm going to put them before me, and this is this is what binds unity together Um, so just a couple other uh, things that bind us together in unity is that unity is based on truth right so there are lots of things that people can be unified people are unified around lies oftentimes about things that aren't true as Christians though we are unified around the truth and so you see this Jesus says this in verse 17 he says that we are sanctified by the truth And what sanctified means is it means that we're set apart, that Jesus himself set himself apart apart by the truth, that we would be set apart with him. And so as Christians, the thing that unifies us is the truth of Christianity. It's the truth of who Jesus actually is. This is the commonality that binds us and puts us on the same purpose. Um, Spurgeon says, I'm quite sure that the best way to promote union is to promote truth. And John Blakard says, when the Bible speaks about church unity, it speaks of unity not at the expense of truth, but on the basis of it. I think it's so vital because oftentimes churches will pursue unity, but it's in trivial things. It's at the, it's at the expense of truth. You know, let's minimize, let's minimize the truth about who Jesus is, and let's just be inclusive. You know, listen, there, there can be many ways to God. And so they they deny the truth of who Jesus is in the hope of being unity conscious, of being open, being accepting. But you see what happens is that you don't have any kind of real unity. You have a false unity, a fake connection that doesn't actually endure, that doesn't hold up in the storms and the tough times. That we don't minimize truth for the sake of unity. That there is a time and a place where unity is broken because of truth. Right? That there are times and moments that unity is going to be sacrificed for the sake of truth. But you see, I think that that's been too often. One of the things that we see, and in, in you go back and you look at the Protestant Reformation right which you have Luther that breaks off from Roman Catholicism because of some legitimate claims right some legitimate truth issues indulgences you know worshipping saints you know and and praying to saints you have um purgatory you have a lot of these doctrines that aren't biblical that that Luther breaks away from rightly so because he's not going to be unified when there's you know on the and, and skip out on what is true but then you see what happens next is that you see division after division after division in the Protestant church. Is How many different denominations are there? Why? Well, oftentimes because of people's preferences, because of people's opinions. And they begin to become so conscious about every kind of minute detail that they forget that Christ desires unity. And so you see, it's this balance that we are not to be unified at the expense of truth, but we're also not to be so nitpicky that we're going to break away and we're going to forsake unity because of how important it is that we should fight together for unity. We should strive for it. It should be a last resort that we have spent every other option before we will break away because we are committed, because we're faithful. So we see that unity is expressed through truth, On the base of truth Uh, we see that unity is also it's driven by love and this is what he prays that jesus prays he says that we would realize that we are loved just as god the father loved christ think about that the way that god the father loved christ they have been in a love relationship from before eternity and this is the kind of love that he says should exist in the church we first need to know that god loved us from the foundation of the world think about that have you who has loved you the longest in your life Right, most of you probably your parents, right? They've been around since you were born. And so that, the, the length of that love should probably show you something. You know, like when you have somebody that has loved you through a duration of time, through thick and thin, that their love is proved. Their love is shown to be steadfast and movable. God has loved you before you were born. God has loved you before your parents were born. God has loved you before America was founded as a nation. Right, God has loved you from the foundations of the world. His love for you is unshakable. It's immovable. And it's this enduring love that will allow you to love others. Love people, love people. Hurt people, hurt people. It's only when you know that you are loved deeply where that rests in your soul that you will then love when it's hard, when it's difficult. And you see, this, is, this kind of love drives unity. It drives it. For selfishness and pride, where they abound, this unity happens. I mean, you see it in your friendships. You see it um, in your workplace. You see it all, I mean, in sports teams. You see it when there's someone that is prideful, that is selfish, that wants the ball all the time, right? It brings this unity. The team begins to fall apart. But where there's love, and love is, is so closely related to humility. They go together, for humility is preferring others above yourself, And love is genuinely caring about their well-being. Love is is a concern for their ultimate good. He says when these are the motives that drive us, unity begins to form. It has to be intentional that we choose to love each other deeply, overlooking one another's flaws and sins, choosing to put others before ourselves. So, the last thing that we see in our pursuit of unity is that unity is sustained through commitment. All right? Unity is sustained through commitment. Unity is not something that just naturally happens. Right? I don't know about you, but unity even within the family isn't something where you just kind of wake up and say, Well, I guess it's going to happen. Like, it takes commitment. It takes promises being made and being fulfilled. And this is true for, for any enduring relationship that you have, whether it's your marriage, whether it's a deep friendship that you've had, is that that relationship and that unity has been built time and time again because there were commitments made on both parties, right? Commitments to be there, commitments to, to love, to have fun, to, to share life together. There were commitments that were made and those commitments were fulfilled, right? I mean, there are times where there's brokenness that comes through, but but unity, this, having the same heart and the same mind comes through making commitments, even when it's difficult, right? Because there's lots of times where unity isn't what you want, right? There's lots of times where you say, I'd rather just walk away. Like this isn't worth this much drama or this isn't worth this much effort. This isn't worth this much time or this much pain. And so we would just rather give up. And this is where commitment comes in and it sustains unity. As we look to Christ and we see that he was committed to us. Christ didn't say, well, I guess it's going to cost too much to buy them. Good luck, guys. You're on your own. No, Christ said, listen, I, I see the cost. I'm willing to pay it. I see the investment. And I'm all in. And he says that this kind of commitment should mark the church. And this is hard, right? We live in a very low commitment culture. right? We live in a very low commitment culture. And so... To have that kind of commitment, to make promises and keep them to one another, is something that is so countercultural. It's something that will stick out, that will shine forth in the world that doesn't know Christ. And as people see that you make commitments to other Christians and you keep them, that you're faithful to your word, they'll want to be a part of a community of a people that, that does that, that actually says what they mean and gets behind it. So commitment helps hold fast unity. So finally, how is it that we express these things here? All right, We've talked about why we need unity, what the nature of unity is, and now how do we practically express our unity here at Faith Fellowship? Um, man, sermons are so timely. I, f- I figured like, the Lord just has them personally for me um, because they're always like right on time for what's going on. Um, As a lot of you guys know, we are going through covenant connection, right? Um, Covenant connection, as we've talked about, that we believe that as Christians we are in covenant with God and that we are in covenant with other believers by the nature of what it means. Um, And so we are in the reality of it. We are in covenant with other Christians, but that's other Christians universal, right? We are brothers and sisters. We're part of a family universal, but that means practically that we are called to be connected specifically someplace, right? We are to exercise that relationship with, non, with other Christians in a specific time, specific location, at a specific place. And so as a church, we've been seeking to, to help that, to clarify what the scriptures call us to as one another. Uh, and you see this all throughout, you see this really all throughout the Bible, is this kind of covenantal understanding of the church, Right, you have fifty-nine one anothers, fifty-nine one anothers, and these aren't just to be generalized. Like, well, I'm going to do these with anybody and everybody. No, this is something that you're called to specifically exercise with certain people. And just kind of, I just wanted to read and just hear some of the one anothers that the Bible talks about. It says that we are to be at peace with each other, that we are to wash one another's feet, that we are to love one another. That we are to honor one another above yourselves. That we are to stop passing judgment on one another. That we are to accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. That we are to instruct one another, greet one another with a holy kiss. I would prefer a hug or handshake. Um, When you come together to eat, you are to wait for each other. That you are to have equal concern for each other. You are to serve one another in love. That you're to carry each other's burdens. Right? All of these things, there's 59 different one another throughout the New Testament. All of these only happen with a specific group, at a specific time. I don't know about you, but I can't carry everybody's burdens. <laughs> Neither can you. So you're called to be in a specific local church where you are helping to bear other people's burdens. That you're called to rejoice with a specific group of people as they're rejoicing. And this is something that doesn't just happen, right? We don't just fall into this. This is something that has to be something that is intentional. We desire and come together and say, this is what the Bible teaches. And I want to do it here at this local church. And so that's the heartbeat of why we've been doing Covenant Connection is that our heart is that we do not add to the scriptures whatsoever. Instead, what we say is that the scriptures call us to do these things already, And so literally what it means to be a Christian is it means that we're doing these things. The only thing that we're saying is that we're actually going to do it here. That this is the place and this is the people that we're going to do what God has called us to do. And the hard thing is that we like ambiguity. Right? We like ambiguity. Like love just generally. Like serve generally. Rather than serve specifically here with this people. Give. Commit. Be faithful to. And you see, God would call us to be specific. He would call us to be with a people that we might do these things. We might live our Christian life, not in isolation, not as a lone wolf, but rather together. And it's, it's so fascinating that this is actually, you know, the Bible talks about it as membership, right? It literally uses the word membership, although not in the way that we're thinking, right? You think membership, you think of like Costco or Sam's club, right? Great deals, good prices. You know, like when the Bible talks about membership, it's talking about as members of a body, right? He says that you are, each individually are members of Christ that you are to play the role of perhaps a foot or you're a mouth or you're an ear or you're the eyes that each of us plays an integral part in the body of Christ that we are members of one another and just as it would be really hard to get anywhere if your legs decided just to stop moving so it's hard for the body of Christ when members of his body decide we just don't want to participate today we don't want to follow Jesus in this area And so he calls us to to fully submit, to fully be on the same page, to be with one another. And so this is why we're doing Covenant Connection. This is why we believe that membership is biblical because they did. They kept a list of, you can look, they knew who were Christians. Paul apparently knew who they were because he went to persecute them. There was a list of widows that were kept. And so they knew who was hurting. Elders were responsible for people's souls. And that's a heavy matter that I know that our elders don't take lightly. That there's going to be a day where God holds us accountable for people's souls. That we are in, responsible for caring for them, for loving for them, for shepherding them and guiding them towards Christ. And that's not just a, you know, like, well, I just wonder who that is. Like, there are specific people that you're called to know and to shepherd. And that also, as members, as people that are part of the body, there are specific leaders that the Bible calls you to, to honor, to, to follow after as they serve you. Leadership is about serving And so all these things lead us to say that this should be something that doesn't just happen. You don't just come to and then you just kind of slowly drift into. But this is something that is intentional. This is something that is agreed upon. This is something that is understood up front. And you say, you know, I do believe that the Bible teaches these things and I am agreeing that this is where I believe God would call me to practice these things at. And so I want to be committed to what God is doing here and what God is doing through this local body. And this isn't And this has been around from the very beginning. You know, sometimes you think about, well, like, oh, membership, it's not biblical. Well, we've seen that it really is biblical. And then last, it's actually historical, too. That in 60 AD, they had what's called the Didache. The Didache was early church manual. And so it was really trained people in what church membership is. And you can go back, it was actually something they were debating whether they would put in the canon or not. But it didn't make And so around 60 to 100 AD, they had this church manual called the Didache that they used in discipling and training people about what it means to be a part of the church. What does it mean to be integrated, to be in covenant relationship with the church? Now, they didn't have a lot of papyri back then, so they didn't have everything written down and signed on the dotted line. But they walked them through, and sometimes it was a process as long as two years. And that was from the beginning is that they would walk them through and make sure that they understood what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to follow Jesus, what it meant to be in unity with his church. And then if they understood that, they would baptize them, and then they could take up the Lord's Supper. And we saw that this process was a whole part of the early church, and then it merged as Roman Catholicism came about. And so you saw people become a membership because of baptism, right? Infants are baptized, and they're part of the church, whether they're really a believer or not. And it was at the Protestant Reformation that membership came back to more of its biblical foundation. Where you see, especially in the Puritans, when the Puritans broke off from England and they came over to the United States, and you had congregationalism, this idea that people should gather together in local congregations, you know, under their own authority, rather than under the authority of the Pope or under the authority of bishops of England. It was this idea of the local congregation where there are people that say, we believe that God has called us to be a part of the visible church. God has called us to gather together and that this should happen. Not just because not just simply like by professing a faith, but it's it's by choosing and covenanting together and saying this is what it means to be the church, and we want to be a part of it. So that's that's kind of part of the reason for how we and how we express unity here at Faith Fellowship is that we express unity through um, Anybody and everybody is welcome to be in covenant, that it's never a force. Everybody is welcome to come and to attend, that there's never any force in in choosing in covenant, but it's a way that we can express our unity. It's through saying, I want to do what the Scriptures call me to do at this place with these people for this amount of time that I'm able to. Uh, and it, it demonstrates... It, and it's a, big, it's a big deal intentionally making covenant. Just being married, I realize it's a big deal intentionally making covenant. That it's not something you just fall into, right? You have two different, you know, there are people that live together and that maybe practice a lot of loving things. And we would say, hey, that's, it's good that you love each other. It's good that you serve each other. It's good that you care for one another. Those are good things. But we would say that it's really important that you make covenant. The covenant actually helps bring about the commitment and the love because of the process of that. Right? It's not simply that it's a piece of paper or that it's legal. Like I don't look at a piece of paper and say, Oh, this is why I'm married, but it was the process of choosing and understanding what commitment meant and what it means for me to be a loving husband and to be a part of the church. And that helps solidify that. And so too, as we think about the coven, as we think about covenant connection, it's not about a bunch of writings or paper or signing your name because anybody can do that. It's about having the right heart behind it. It's about having the right spirit and saying, and I'm choosing to love. I'm choosing to give. And that happens and it's helped along through the process of covenanting. Um, so practically that's, that's one way I think that unity is expressed. Um, and the reason I said, uh, that I felt like this sermon was really timely for this week is that as elders, we operate on the, um, basis of consensus. Right, So whenever we are making any kind of decision, we operate in full consensus. And so if somebody has something they're not quite sure, but they don't have quite peace about, then we pull back and we say, hold on, let's pray about this. And so we were about to go through our second round of Covenant Connection, and as we as elders were praying about it, we feel full peace about covenant about the process of covenant, but we actually have said, you know, we want to process it more through about the covenant itself and about what it means and about how it's instituted and about the process of that. And so really practically, it was really encouraging for me to see how unity actually expressed itself in that moment because we said, Hey, we're going to table the second covenant connection and we're going to pray through this. We're going to search this out. We're going to get more time to dig in. So that as we bring about covenant, we have understood it more fully and we're all completely unified in how it's brought about. Um, and so that was, I hope that that's encouraging to you because that's encouraging to me. It helps guide me not only in my marriage, but also in other relationships and how we go about making decisions that we don't just plow through things. And that's, that's our heartbeat as, as a church, as elders is that we don't want to just plow through things. Instead, we want to be sensitive to the spirit as how the spirit leads and want to lead forth in and through consensus. And so um, probably in january or at a future time we're going to continue doing uh covenant connection and bringing people into covenant but we want to make sure first and foremost that we're completely unified in how that process is is brought about um so how does this apply to you right how is this what what can i walk away and say this is what i'm called to do um i think the call is to love and be committed to christ and to others more at least that's the challenge for me that I walk away from, is I think about what are people and what are areas that Christ would call me to love and to be more committed to. How can I lay my life down more for others in the church? How can I give of myself knowing that what Christ has given for me? And I hope that at, as you go this afternoon that the Holy Spirit would take that and he would apply it in a very personal, practical way. Maybe that's getting plugged into a life group and saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give us some of my time, and I'm really going to be invested in other Christians. I'm going to allow them to be invested in my life. Maybe it's simply, hey, you know, I'm going to choose to be in accountability. I know that I need it. I, you know, my schedule, my stage of life, and, you know, I'm just going to choose to be in accountability. I'm going to be committed to others, to be there, to encourage them, to love them, to confess my sins to others. But what does it look like for you to, to commit and to love others as you would want them to commit and love you? Let us pray. Father, thank you for today. Uh, thank you for your heartbeat, for uh, uniting how you call us as a church to express that and how it witnesses to the reality of who you are, to to your love and your mercy and your goodness in us. Uh, I pray, God, that you would help us to understand covenant more about what it means to relate to each other in love and commitment um, based on truth. Help us, God, to be a people that love each other deeply, that forgive each other, that are patient with each other, that continue to do the one another's. So unify us, God, that the world would see and that you would save others through our love. It's in your name that we pray, Christ. Amen.